Praise waiteth for thee, O God, in Zion, and unto thee shall the vow be performed. Let's bow our hearts and heads in sound of preparation for worship. We ask, precious Spirit of truth and light, to be with us this evening, that we would pay attention, God, that we would put aside all distractions, and that we would be blessed by your word. In your name we pray, amen. Let us pray. This evening, God above, we are thankful for yet another glorious day, a day of rest for our body and for our soul, Lord above, and we thank you for the blessed uh, time we had in the afternoon uh, with friends and family, Lord, rest that we have. We ask God that you be with us this week. We pray, Lord, for your spirit to be upon us, that we would live each day before you, Lord, thankful for the many blessings you've bestowed upon us and using uh, the means and the providence you've given us, God, to be useful in your kingdom. We pray for our work situation, God, uh, for those who are uncertain about their work or uh, what the future holds for them, Lord, in some degree or another, that you would help them understand what to do. We pray, Lord, for those with uh, terrible work conditions, God, that you would be merciful upon them and give them something better. We certainly, Lord, thank you for the work and employment that we have and the income that you've blessed us with, God, that we would continue to use it wisely uh, for our family, for the things that you've told us, Lord, to use our funds for, which is one another, Lord, for the church of God, those close to us, Lord, to provide for us, Lord, and even, uh, Lord, to sustain us into the future. To God, use these things for a blessing, Lord, above. We unfortunately see and live in a day and age in which blessings of others uh, become almost a crime if people become envious of one another and they complain and wish to take what is not theirs. And we pray, Lord, that we would not fall into that trap and that we would, Lord, be thankful for the many blessings you've given us, God, and not live a life of materialism where, uh, Lord, we are unduly influenced by the things of this world, by the many blessings that we have, even in this weak economy, God, in this nation of ours that has so many other problems. And yet it seems, uh, Lord, unfortunately, many in this nation are satisfied with wealth, with prosperity with technology and the like. We thankful God for your spirit within us, that Lord, we want you, even if we lost everything. We pray for our education, God. The education in this world, Lord, in this kingdom, which is useful in many ways for the church of God. We learn to read, we learn to write God, which is important for the ministry, obviously, and for one another, for communication. So we pray, God, for our children, that they would continue to learn their ABCs and their one, two, threes and their history and their Bible uh, lessons, to be sure, God, so they can be good citizens of this nation. And of course, with respect to the Bible and the catechisms, God, so they would have a better moral footing in this wicked age of ours, God. Stand firm, Lord. Give them strength and give them boldness, Lord. Give them satisfaction with the Word of God and the truth therein. And that they, Lord, would not care what the world thinks, but rather, God, care what you think and the church of God. So we pray indeed, Lord, for their education in your truth and for our continued education, God, as we are students, pupils of Jesus Christ, and the church is your school. We are here, God, to learn and to teach. We ask, Lord, that we continue to do that in our church and our sister churches and other churches in this city of ours, God, that they would take their job seriously, Lord, as pastors and as churches, Lord. And we would take our job seriously as students of the Word, to read your Word, to memorize your Word, to apply your Word to the life in which we find ourselves in. Help us, we pray, God, ever to maintain uh, the truth of your Word and education uh, in your Word and theology and the like, God, and again, increasingly dark age in which we find ourselves in. We pray, God, for each other. We ask for a growth in sanctification. So we'll read here about being living holy stones. Uh, to be holy, God, to be obedient to your word and thought, word, and in deed. We pray in particular for our youth to stand firm again from the temptations of this age, which often idolizes youthfulness, Lord, the youth, uh, and gives them more influence and power than they ought to have. We ask, Lord, that they would continue to learn in our churches and that they would use their strength and creativity for the good of the church uh, while submitting to the eldership, uh, that is not only the session, but the elderly among them, and certainly their parents, God, 
uh, to listen to the wisdom that they have and the many years of experience, God, so that we can mesh together as churches and use our strengths and abilities from age and youth, from rich and poor, and different uh, degrees of differences in the light, God, for the betterment of our churches and for each other, we pray. We ask for continued unity, God, again, unity based upon the truth of your word and upon a common practice, as we'll read this evening, God, the practice of being holy saints, lifting up uh, sacrifices in your name. In your name alone we pray. Amen. This evening, God, we are thankful. We pray for your blessings upon these tithes and offerings to be used for the good of your kingdom. In your name alone we pray. Amen. First Peter chapter 2. Verses 4 through 5, part of a larger section, as is the case often when you write letters. If you wrote them yourselves, they're organic, you're related to each section. You don't stop and say point two, point three, right? You just keep writing uh, what's on your mind. We have some of this here, so there's some overlap we'll see of themes. Uh, but I, I want to stick with this part here, verses 4 through 5, to make it more digestible. Let us listen attentively to the Word of God. Coming to Him as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Glorious God above, we are thankful for such a beautiful language here. Reminder, God, of how you've called us into a life of holiness, and that we are living stones as Christ is the chief cornerstone. And that this is an encouragement, God. Again, Peter is partly admonishing them, that is, pointing them in the right direction, but also reminding them of what they know to be true. Lord, that you have set us aside, that you are indeed building us up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ, echoing the language of the Old Testament with the New Testament reality. Help us, God, to be encouraged therein and to continue on in our Christian walk. In your name alone we pray. Amen. The world is full of wickedness. You know, I used to say that perhaps 20 years ago or in the 80s and 90s, and you certainly was true, but if you realize, of course, that some sins are more heinous than others, it is much more wicked now than when we were children, let alone the older among us. We see it growing more in America. Your neighbors, your coworkers, your fellow citizens are more and more excusing sins and seeking new ways to be unholy. In many ways, we're returning to the time of Peter's book here, the time of Rome. The time of Rome, the families and the fathers in particular had the authority to kill their babies. Masters abuse their workers, and I don't mean the way we talk about it today. Kill them. Slave was not considered human. And men and women destroy marriage, destroy their gender or sex, even back then. This means these verses are more relevant today for us than perhaps it was in prior generations. Here, Peter is reminding his fellow workers, his fellow believers, to flee their old pagan ways, ways that we are seeing again today, to be separate from the world, to be holy, upright, a royal priesthood. In these opening verses, we are told that we are living stones, a holy priesthood. He is describing what it means to be a follower of Jesus in the midst of a wicked and perverse generation of raw paganism. And we certainly don't have people worshiping idols today, so we don't have that kind of paganism. I just mean all the morality short of actual temples and priestesses. Although we have something like priestesses uh, in the mainline churches, female pastors who bring up little kids and tell them we are declaring ourselves to be something different than we were born as. Have you seen that video? It's disgusting. It's horrifying. In a church, like a sacrament, that's where we are. And you are called to stand firm against that, not fall into that way of thinking, to be a holy priesthood, living stones by Jesus Christ. The first point, Christ the living stone. What is it? Well, it's an imagery taken up from the Old Testament, Isaiah 28, 16. Isaiah 28, 16, going to recognize this. Therefore, says the Lord God, behold, I lay in Zion 
a stone for a foundation, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not act hastily. A building, a temple, lay in Zion, the city of our God. A better temple than the one of the Old Testament is the implication. We read about this again in Psalm 118, Psalm 118, 22. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. You know the echo of that in the New Testament, in fact. And so here we see in 1 Peter 2, 6, so the next verse we haven't got there yet. Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious. He who believes on him will not by no means be put to shame. Quoting Isaiah, Peter's anticipating this Bible verse in these opening verses, first, verses 4 through 5, what we read in Isaiah. He starts talking, describing them in these terms. And in fact, it was quoted in Acts 4, chapter 11 by Peter as well. This is the same stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone, Peter tells his audience, the Jews. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which they must be saved than this rock, this chief cornerstone, that is Jesus Christ. As you know, the idea of a rock here, and of course specifically the cornerstone, is the idea of a foundation of a building. This particular word here, can come as living stone. In fact, we are called stones. Living stones, in verse 5, is a dressed stone, a stone designed and chiseled, a rock or stone used for specific purposes, like a millstone for food or a covering of a grave, or in this case, the foundation of a building. So it's not just a random rock in the road in the field, but rather it's shaped and formed by man for a purpose, for a function. In this case, to establish the holy kingdom of God the temple of our Lord Jesus Christ, the church. Ephesians 2.20, we read, Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, a popular image of the New Testament of Christ as the stone, means Christ is the chief cornerstone, that is the stone that sets the pattern for the shape of the building and for its foundation. That it's not crooked or cattywampus or out of order, but it's perfectly square and set and everything else is built around that stone. Because you mess that up, everything else is out of whack, and the building will collapse. Christ is that chief cornerstone. He is what keeps the building and established the building of our Lord Jesus Christ, the church, the temple of his body. Chosen by God, we read, coming to him, that is we, believers, come to Jesus, as to a living stone, that is Jesus, our living stone. He is our cornerstone. He is what we need as other stones to be a building. We need that chief cornerstone. Rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. Precious indeed. He's chosen by God. Remember that Jesus Christ did not anoint himself. The Father anointed him with the baptism of the Holy Spirit by John the baptizer. That is, he firmly set him aside for his ministry on earth. And of course, he's precious, for Christ is the Son of God, dear to his heart. Today I have begotten thee, we read in Psalm 2. This is Jesus Christ. This is our Lord and Savior. He is the one whom we must go to, to get this living life, this reality. The word here, living, is an interesting connection with stones, because stones aren't living. They're not alive. It's a mixed metaphor, we'd say. What's wrong with Peter? Why is he mixing metaphors? Because he's trying to get across several ideas at once to get our attention to combine two truths here in this memorable picture. Stones to create a new house of God's kingdom, and of course living stones as the source of the Holy Spirit who gives us life-giving source of the building of Jesus Christ. 
where we read here of the Spirit being the source of our life, a living hope, we read in verse 3, for example, through Jesus Christ our Lord. And this is a living stone that we are spiritually aware of God. We are spiritually responsive to God. We believe in Him and we have the Spirit within us. John 5.26 we read, For as the Father has life in Himself, so He also has granted the Son to have life in Himself. And of course, he who believes in Him has the life of the Son. And so although stones describe that we are, verse 5, built up as a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, so He plays off that theme. The house obviously is the temple. Why else do you have a priesthood? He's reminding him again, not like the Old Testament with respect to the Pharisees and the like who thought it was just a building, but lively and alive, we have the Holy Spirit. Everyone who's ever been saved has always had the Holy Spirit. John 6.68, but Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of a life eternal. This is why he is the living stone. He's the source of our life as believers. Without him, we would be like the world. We would enjoy the sins of the world. We would make the excuses of the world for our sins, instead of being repentant and desiring to be with God's people and to learn and to grow and to be here with Him. Now, Jesus is the living stone. He is chosen by God, as we know. We read that in Psalm 2. That was providential. And precious indeed, it's also rejected by man. He is the rejected stone. Again, prophesied of old, Psalm 118.22, which I had read earlier. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and is marvelous in our eyes. The builders rejected him. We read that in Peter in Acts 4.11, that you rejected Jesus. You need to repent and follow him. Jesus came as the stone of the new temple, the New Testament. And they didn't want him. They wanted the old temple. That's why we have a whole book of Hebrews to tell, you don't want the old temple anymore. It's all done away with. Sacrifice is gone. The priesthood is gone. Christ is the temple. Christ is the sacrifice. Christ is the priesthood. Matthew 21.42, we read, Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the Scriptures the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing and is marvelous in our eyes as he rebukes his Jewish audience, as he is wont to do. Don't you know the Bible, he says? I'm not surprised you reject me. It was prophesied of old. It was a sad rejection to be sure because he was one of their own. It was a double rejection, right? He is a fellow Jew and their Messiah. 1 Peter 2.4, of course, rejected indeed my men as though almost in passing, just mentions it here, but chosen by God and continues on describing us. But he'll pick up this rejection later on in verse 7. We'll get that to the next sermon, so we won't cover it here. Second point, not only is Christ, of course, the living stone, we are living stones, living holy stones. So I'm mixing a little more with his metaphor because we are a priesthood, we are stones, we are living, we are holy. it would be a long title, so I just said living holy stones to put all that together. First of all, he reminds them that you, as living stones, it's a given. Christ is the living stone, you're the living stone. Because Christ is the source of your life. Our living, spiritual lives, our responsiveness to the Word of God, our desire to pray and to learn more about God, comes from Christ. It comes from the Holy Spirit. Matthew 7.24, we read, Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. So we have a specific idea of what he means by spiritual house. What is, what is he talking about? Built up a spiritual house, kind of a vague idea here. I think, first of all, by spiritual house, he means centered in the Holy Spirit, not something invisible that perhaps if you have special glasses, you can see. Not that kind of spiritual, I don't believe, but rather that it's uh, empowered by the Holy Spirit and that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit 
1 Corinthians 3.16, do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? House is but another name for the temple in the Old Testament, the house of God, for example. And so we are united by faith to Jesus Christ. And in that union that we have by the power of the Spirit, He is fashioning us and forming us into His image. And part of the way of describing that is we are like a building and like rocks, living rocks, that He puts together into the kingdom of God. We each have a place in that building to hold up walls, foundations, to hold up this and that, to extend the metaphor that God is using us and helping us grow. It's a picture of sanctification. That's what he's talking about. It's nothing more fancy than that. Being more holy, being more like God, being more like Jesus. And so we have unity uh, with Christ by faith and that we have the power of the Holy Spirit unto an end of holiness. House of holiness. House empowered by the Holy Spirit because we are the temple of God. Not just any house, the temple, the very temple of God. And so we don't want the Old Testament temple. That is done away with. We don't care about that anymore. A temple empowered by the Spirit, he calls us, Priests, therefore, are being built up a spiritual house. Again, being done to us. The Spirit of God is working on us. That's sanctification. A holy priesthood. So now he's done with the spiritual house imagery and is talking about a holy priesthood. That's what we are. If you have a temple, you've got to have a priesthood to go with the temple. Which sounds kind of weird, doesn't it? Didn't we just read a book saying there is no more priesthood? What's he talking about? He's not talking about, of course, a physical or a material priesthood, but he's bringing out the spiritual reality of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ because they know part of what it means to be a priest is to be set aside and special. They had to do certain rituals and baptisms, actually, frankly, to purify themselves while they're doing their work in a way that the rest of the non-priests had to do. They had special rules for them. That's what it meant to be a priest. You were set apart from those who were set apart. Israel was set apart from the world, and the the priests were set apart from the Jews who were set apart from the world. You see that? And this is reminding us we're more like the priests now. That is, with God's Spirit within us, we are called unto a higher call of sanctification, even in the Old Testament. And I'll remind you again, brothers and sisters, I know it doesn't feel like it, but you are more sanctified collectively, and often even individually, than the Old Testament. How many of you here will put up with a husband with more than one wife? None of you. Good. They had more than one wife. That's kind of a weak sanctification going on there, I would say. And so God has set us aside, and we see part of that by the imagery itself. We're like the priests of old, right? We're like the priests of old. We are the temple of God, wherein he dwells in a special manner, and so we are like priests who are specially set aside to be in a special temple. Because only the priests could be in the temple. In the Old Testament, no one else could be there. You'd die. God would kill you. And even kill the priests if they did it wrong. What does that mean? It means individually... Each believer has the Holy Spirit and is fashioning us like stones to be a beautiful building that is a spiritual building of holiness, a life, building our life up, we would use the word today, to be an image of Jesus Christ. Not just our bodies, what we do with our bodies, but with our souls and our minds and our words, to be holy, to be something, a part of God's kingdom, a holy priesthood, those who offer up and worship God, not just on Sunday, but throughout the week. Collectively, of course, your family and our church that's why we have household baptisms, and we believe there is a collective nature to the church. Children are part of that. Our church, of course, we expected uh, more out of our leadership, as it were. And if members fall into grievous error, we will discipline members of the church in a way we would not discipline non-members. We don't do anything with non-members. 1 Corinthians 5, right? You have a sin in your midst. Why aren't you dealing with that man who's married to the wrong person? 
Remember that chapter? And it continues on at the end of the chapter. It says, we don't have, what do we have to do with those who are without? We're not, we're not here to discipline them. We discipline the church. It's a holy temple of the Lord to be set apart from the world. We take sin seriously. And that's extended to the leadership of the church that we take it even more seriously. We put up even less within the leadership of the church, and that's the way it should be. That's what it looks like. It's sanctification. It's your life growing more like Jesus, being more obedient in thought, word, and deed. The imagery here being not only a temple, your life is like a building. What are you going to do with it, right? How are you going to build your life? But also a priesthood, a holy priesthood. You are a holy priesthood. Third point. The imagery here of a priesthood is quite amazing, it seems to me, maybe because of my dispensational background. In Exodus 19.6, in Exodus 19.6, you recall this passage. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Really? I thought they had priests and everything else got to do what they want, right? No, God is saying, all of you are priests before me. And we see that in Numbers, where God says you must redeem the firstborn and that I have a priesthood to be in place of all of you instead. So God was merciful and said, I will actually set apart some of you to be priests formally when I'm calling, you all, calling all of you priests. And so that moral reality of what it means to be a priest is what is highlighted here by Peter. Not that you actually have to go out there and find a lamb and slaughter it, but that the imagery of the Old Testament, of the special things they had to do was to highlight the fact that you are unique from the world. The world is full of wickedness. You're supposed to be holy. That's what it's emphasizing. A holy priesthood is almost redundant, that word. Priests are supposed to be holy and set apart and special. That's what we are called to, brothers and sisters, just like the Old Testament. So you can actually go to those texts and learn about the heinousness of sin, for example, and the seriousness of God's law, like in the book of Leviticus. There are commentaries that do that. A holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. And you can see why, from my dispensational background, how amazing this is, because this is Jewish language. And Jews are supposed to be separate and have their priesthood. But here he's telling us, no, you're Jews. And there are probably Jews in his audience. Like I said, some commentators think it's all Jews. I think it's probably some Jews and a number of Gentiles that had Jewish influence. They were proselytes for the Jews, right? They lived with the Jews and whatnot, because there's a lot of Old Testament imagery here. Those Gentiles had to know their Old Testament. It's the idea of a holy life, obedience to God, purity of heart, being living sacrifices, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. Not perfect. We know that. He just you know, told them, lay aside all malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and evil speaking. Then he turns around, turns around and says, you are offering sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ Jesus. But they're not perfect, Pastor. You are offering sacrifices, the spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ Jesus. That's what it says. Well, what does it mean? The New Testament uses Old Testament language of the ceremonial system often. Of the sacrifices in particular, we'll see here, which is to say the sacrifices were the outward way, the symbolic way of describing moral obedience to God. That's what it's saying. Nothing more fancy than that. It's a word picture about your obedience to God in thought, word, and deed, which, of course, some of that's visible your hands and your mouth, and audible or invisible, the things of your heart. So, the Old Testament, of course, and the New Testament, we have Hebrews 13, 15, that we offer up sacrifices of praise and thanksgiving. He finished the book saying the sacrifices are gone, and then he says, offer up sacrifices of praise and thanksgiving. What's he saying? But that the physical act is done, but the moral reality behind it, what is symbolized is still there. You're supposed to be holy before God. You're supposed to be obedient. You're supposed to offer praise and thanksgiving. 
And you can still do it without a sacrifice, he's saying. Don't get hung up on that. The priests are gone, that's fine. The sacrifice is gone, that's fine. You can still do it. And I'm going to call it a sacrifice. The word we use today, of course, is spiritual sacrifice. That's what he's talking about. Romans 12, 1 and 2. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. There's that word again. Holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. There is no temple. There are no priests. There are no animal sacrifices. But he's still talking about sacrifices. Because he's saying, that's the point of the Old Testament. (laughs) It was never about the actual animals, but what it represented. Christ... Yes, but also our moral activity of submitting to Christ and giving up our life to Christ and obeying Christ. That actually had two functions. Don't forget that. Some people uh, like to focus only on the fact that the sacrifices are about Christ. Christ is our lamb. Christ shed his blood for us. That's true. That's there. But this is also here, that your sanctification, you are offering up, right, in your life, just like they did in the Old Testament. They offered up the lamb. Both images are meshed into one event, as it were. Don't forget that. It also includes our good work. Good works more specifically. Hebrews 13, 16 again. But do not forget to do good and to share. For with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. Your good works are sacrifices. You go back to the Old Testament and go, oh, this wasn't only pointing to Christ, but also pointed to your work in praise of God. What else does it mean unless Peter doesn't know what he's talking about? Or Paul. And so you read that and go, I can't be dispensational. It was never about the animals, as though God was satisfied with the blood of bulls. But it was symbolic. It was to teach children, because children like picture books. And then you grow up, and you're in the New Testament. We don't need picture books anymore. But the reality of the picture books, the lessons of the picture books are still there. We, we know the lessons. We grew up with them. And here we have it in the language of sacrifices. And so we have that here when he says, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifice. He's saying, offer up your life, offer up your words, offer up your thoughts, offer up your actions. Offer up a life of obedience, a life of praise, a life of sharing, because he says to share also in Hebrews 13, 16. Share with one another in the church of God. In Philippians 4, 18. Indeed, I have all and abound. I am full, having received from Epaphroditus the things sent from you, a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice while pleasing to God. So here they gave him something, some good things apparently through this guy. The things sent from you, food, clothing, something. And he says, this is a sacrifice. I'm using Old Testament language because I'm not making things up. That's always the significance of the Old Testament. It's always there. So today we can use this language and understand it all the more. Oh, that's what's going on. This is what Paul is saying of being a holy priesthood. Go to the Old Testament, you see the priesthood, you see Christ, yes. But you should also see what we're called to be. Christ is a living stone. What are we? Oh, that's right, living stones, because we are united with him. Christ is a priest. What are we? Oh, he just said we're a holy priest. Oh, this is interesting. We are identified through Christ, aren't we? He is our Lord and Master. He is our representative before God and covers our sins. And he has shown us the way that we are called to be living stones. We are called to be a holy royal priesthood. We're called to be kings. We read that in Revelation. All three offices in the Christian life. Exercised according to our callings. The man as a woman, the church officer to be sure. But there it is. Brothers and sisters, praise be to the Lord. We are called, in other words, to a life of obedience, of following Him. And it's a life of possible obedience, not impossible obedience. We see that by the discipline, the description, excuse me, that we read here. Paul, Peter, is describing the Christian life, assuming that God is working in them. He says, you are being built up by the Spirit into a spiritual house. Not arguing about it, he's assuming it. There it is. Assuming that they are holy and could be more holy. He calls them a holy priesthood. And it's present tense, are being built up. 
right here and right now. And of course, the promise. Promise is implied in the verb, are being built up, because we know it's God doing it. You're passive. It's God's behind it, and it's part of the gospel promise. He works in you his perfect will one day at a time. It seems forever, I know. Am I ever going to have sanctification, God, you pray? God says it's coming, but you need to be patient. You need to be patient, right? One day is a thousand days to me. A thousand days are as one day to me. Time is meaningless to God. He tells us to be patient. And then thirdly, by the Spirit in Christ, they are spiritual sacrifices. I, I, I take that to mean done by the power of Spirit, Spirit-empowered sacrifices who dwells in us. And of course, the offerings that we give before God, our obedience, our submitting to our husband, our leading our family, are listening to our parents, are doing our schoolwork, taking care of the house. That's what you're called to do. That's obedience. Those are acceptable sacrifices to God through Jesus Christ, by the blood of Christ Jesus. He accepts it. But it's so pathetic, God, you tell yourself. And God's like, okay, let me tell you again. You are a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. I don't give this to you. I am not a father who gives stone when you ask for bread. You ask for a life of obedience. I'm telling you, you're having it right now, although you don't feel like it at times. A little here, a little there, yes. Sure, you sin, no doubt about it. But again, brothers and sisters, Hebrews, we read it. We read it here. We've read it elsewhere. Like you take the drawings of your child, that scribble that's called a unicorn. You say, thank you. And you put it on the fridge. That's a good work. Their heart was in it, you say. That's what God does with us because we are his children. He's no longer our judge. The text is true, brothers and sisters. Let us be encouraged. We are called to a life of holiness because we have the power of the Spirit in us. We are are being built up, even right now, into a spiritual house, a spiritual life of obedience when we give a sacrifice of our lips, a praise, a sacrifice of our actions, a sacrifice of our hearts, day in and day out, as we try to obey and try to love one another by the power of the Spirit. Acceptable sacrifice before our God and Father through His blood. Amen. Let us pray. May we be encouraged, God, to not give up in a day and age in which we are surrounded by wickedness, a world full of wickedness, more wickedness than we thought possible in the last 10 years, God, to do the right thing regardless. Help us, God, to stand firm and to be encouraged by this fact that we are going to be holy, although we're not always holy as we want to be, God. We can be quite impatient. Nevertheless, Lord, may we not be discouraged, but carry on to offer up by the power of the Spirit sacrifices acceptable by the blood of Jesus Christ. Amen. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.